I'm Nadira Goff, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Gran Turismo is Cynical and Glorious edition. It's Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. On today's show, the movie Gran Turismo has received an interesting smattering of reviews. The film is, as it relentlessly reminds us with its subtitle, based on a true story of a teen gamer who turned his adeptness at racing simulation games into a career as an actual race car driver. It stars Archie Medecki of Midsommar fame, David Harbour, and Orlando Bloom. And then, Mask Girl is the newest popular Korean drama to hit Netflix, though it's more of a thriller. The dark themes of the show, which centers on a young woman who assumes a masked internet personality, might draw some comparisons to Netflix's 2021 K-drama hit Squid Game. But are they apt? We'll discuss. And finally, Rich Men North of Richmond is the country song by the previously little-known singer-songwriter Oliver Anthony that currently sits atop the Billboard Hot 100 chart, in large part due to its achieved status as a conservative anthem. So dust off your guitar and groom your beard as we dig in. Joining me today is New York Times opinion columnist, and I must say, my favorite home chef on social media, Jamel Bowie. Hey, Jamel. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Also joining us, and it feels funny to say this, I'll admit, is resident GabFest panelist Julia Turner of the LA Times. Thanks for letting me take the reins here, Julia. I'm so excited to be in your capable hands. Thank you, Nadira, for holding down the hosting duties. I'm so excited to chat with you guys today. Anytime. All right, ready to make a show? Please. Absolutely. Sweet, let's do it. Gran Turismo is the newest movie from District 9 and Elysium director Neil Blumkamp that takes its name from Sony's popular PlayStation series of racing simulation video games. Gran Turismo tells the story, or the Hollywood version at least, of Jan Mardenborough, a teenage Gran Turismo player who successfully completed the now-defunct GT Academy, a joint venture between Nissan and Sony that provided top Gran Turismo gamers with an opportunity to start a real-life racing career. It's a biopic, it's a Sony-Nissan commercial, it's a sports movie, it's part video game adaptation. Whatever it is, it stars Archie Medecki as Mardenborough, David Harbour, Orlando Bloom, and many more familiar faces, including a Spice Girl, which I find fun. In this clip, we're about to hear, you'll hear the voices of Orlando Bloom, who plays the Nissan marketing exec who had this grand idea, and David Harbour, who plays the quintessential washed-up-and-cranky-about-it athlete forced to train young ingenue for self-redemption, as he is asked to evaluate his trainees in a rather unusual way. This entire thing is a marketing extravaganza. Get in the chopper, let us get a few shots. Doing what? Follow the kids around the track, make some notes, act like an engineer, look cool. There's no way I would evaluate race car drivers from a helicopter. It's the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my whole life. I'm not getting in that thing. Let me go to Jamel first. As far as I know, and I could be wrong about this, you are a gamer? Did you or do you play the Gran Turismo games? And what did you think of this movie? Way back in the day, I played Gran Turismo for the PlayStation 2 and 3. So I'm I'm pretty familiar with the game. The other thing I should mention the answer is I, I wouldn't call myself a car guy, but I do like cars. And I am like a dad. And for whatever reason, this movie appeals to me as like you know, dad movie uh, kind of movie. Because it's like very much is about cars, about like how they sound, how fast they go, all that stuff. It's no Ford v. Ferrari, which is like the ultimate in like dad car cinema. But um, it's it's pretty enjoyable. And so on that level, like 
I had a great time. As it compares to the video game, it's like the video game is a racing game. There are some kind of fun flourishes in the film where it kind of gives you the perspective of playing the game. It's actually nifty for helping you keep track of Jan, the protagonist, because the cars look quite similar, especially when they're at the Academy. So the movie taking this sort of third person view and then like giving you a video game kind of style so heads up display is actually very useful just for like orienting yourself in terms of like, okay, who am I looking at? But otherwise it's just sort of like, it's just like racing. It's car go fast, vroom, vroom. I so badly wanted to call this episode Vroom Vroom Edition. I'm putting <laughs> that out there right now. <laughs> okay, Julia, what do you make of dad car cinema? What do you make of everything that Jamel said? And what do you make of this movie? Well, first of all, I want to thank my esteemed co-panelists here for being willing to see this movie, which for a movie about a marketing stunt, I want to give it a shout out for having just a great trailer. Like, I think I saw this trailer 10 times this summer and... Every time I saw it at a film with my child, maybe it's a mom movie too, like just the particular fantasy it peddles that your video gaming life shouldn't be sneered at and underestimated by society and in fact could be teaching you real skills that would have merit in the real world or a world of kind of physical achievement masculinity rather than gaming achievement masculinity just struck me as actually an unusual and pertinent fantasy. Like my sons were fascinated. They were like, whoa, what? Like that is an amazing, I mean, putting colon based on a true story in the actual title of the movie is <laughs> possibly unnecessary, <laughs> like seems subtextual, but like I didn't know about this true story before I saw the trailer for this film. And as soon as my family became aware of it, like it is an interesting fantasy. It's an unusual fantasy. It's a particular modern fantasy. It's not a fantasy that Hollywood has made for us again and again and again, right? There's like, is the gaming thing the real thing? Maybe that's like a subtext of war games, but in a different apocalyptic dystopian way. So I was drawn to the unusualness of the premise and did see it with one of my sons who was thrilled and like has not learned movie theater voice and just like shouts his opinions throughout the movie and was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen <laughs> in the middle of it. So I was <laughs> by his absolute thrill at it. But then the movie itself, it is successful as a sports movie. Like it is a stirring sports movie. I was excited and teary as the various climactic beats were hit at the end. And I think, Jamel, you're right that the use of the kind of gaming mechanics to help orient people in the action helps. I think both of the two lead performances ground the film. I think the the relative newcomer who plays Jan Martinborough is great. You know, David Harbour, TV star, kind of great to see him holding it down on the big screen and he just really goes for it and is like surly salt of the earth trainer guy who doesn't believe, but then he does. I love David Harbour as surly dad. He only gives surly dad, I feel like, in everything that I've seen him in. <laughs> Even in Black Widow, I feel like he had echoes of surly dad. <laughs> and he definitely does, as we all know in Stranger Things. And he just does surly dad so well. Uh, he was definitely my favorite part of this movie. Listen. I'm definitely not a dad. I'm not a parent. And me and cars, like, we don't understand each other. As far as I get, it's the Pixar animated film Cars or Bust. 
<laughs> that's basically where I stand on cars and car cinema and, you know, car entertainment. And I do think that there are certain parts of this movie that felt like they were written by chat GPT or something. I was like, okay, this exa- <laughs> this exact dialogue, I think I have heard in plenty movies until this time. But if there's one thing I love, it is a successful sports movie. And it is Jimon Hansu being a dad and being, you know, brisk and then emotional at the end. And that whole... Uh arc of you know the I did it for you dad or am I doing it for you and like it's your dream not mine thing that is very reminiscent to me of a Disney Channel original movie even (laughs) it's just like made for me and it's one of the reasons why I love sports movies and I completely agree I think the way that they used the machinations of the simulation to keep me oriented because I would have been lost with all those fast cars going around I was like I don't know who's who if if it's a white car I, I don't know who who it is. And so I really like the way that it kept us oriented and kept us, you know, abreast of what's going on and the stakes of the races as they were happening. All that stuff was really, really cool. But yeah, I think for me, like the sports movie part of it held up so much more than the commercial part of it because a a lot of it really did just feel like a Sony commercial or even just look at all the cool things Sony has made. I know so much of this movie is incredibly cynical. Like (laughs) (laughs) it is. I mean, this is the funny thing about, I mean, kind of all Sony pictures movies because they, any, any Sony pictures movie that takes place in the modern day and isn't sort of like a real drama for adults has like, Sony products in it, and I'm always like, no one in the real world uses Sony stuff that much. No one does. No one uses Sony laptops or, you know, media MP3 players. players. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one. No one. Does. This is all fake and made up. So, to to the extent that the movie is a showcase for all of Sony Entertainment Company's various products, it is like extremely cynical. But I, I agree with you both that this movie absolutely works as a kind of down the line, you know, by the books, sports picture. And maybe I've just grown so wary of what's typically in the theaters. Like, I think that in the theater next to mine, they were showing Blue Beetle, which I'm sure is a fine picture, whatever, it's fine. But like, it was just nice to go see kind of like a movie, you know, just like a movie. It's yeah, yeah. The cars go fast. There's like your standard emotional beats. You do get Jamal Hansu like being like emoting, you know, that's fun course a romance because you always have to have a romance in a sports yeah a little movie, bit a know? little bit of romance right like romance it, it's, slightly it's... thin like very appropriate <laughs> romance for um, <laughs> for children it's like the idea of romance right exactly yeah like <laughs> like feel like you know ab- romance in the abstract and otherwise it was uh, totally fine it's not gonna win any awards or anything but i thought it was a totally good time with the movies I mean, the marketing cynicism is handled interestingly because you at one point you're like, why is this character still listening to a, a old yellow Walkman? And then you're like, OK, but the character of the marketing genius who comes up with this whole stunt is portrayed really interestingly, also has among the most interesting hair I've seen on cinema. Like, I think the hair is doing a lot of character work. He's like supposed to be a slick marketing executive, but his hair just looks insanely dirty all the time. And it gives him this (laughs) sense of kind of like uncontrolled desperation that's really doing a lot along with Orlando Bloom's just general smarm capacity. But the marketing exec is like, he's not the bad guy or the good guy. And he's meant to almost like puncture 
the concern that this is a marketing stunt by acknowledging that it's a marketing stunt and the ethics of it being a marketing stunt are kind of problematic and like give you permission as the audience to just go ahead and root for the guy. And it ba that basically works. It works in that function. But the other thing that's really interesting is just the ethics of racing. Like the one part of the movie that didn't quite work for me is the initial training academy where the gamers show up and learn to drive cars. And it's just done, it's done in such a quick cut montage that you don't actually really have any practical sense of how fucking terrifying that would be or the kind of emotional terror of the fantasy becoming real. Like it seemed like there was a real opportunity to engage with the particular unusual fantasy that this movie is about in a more grounded way. And so that montage would comes for it early. I was disappointed. I was like, ugh, this movie's not going to be any good. And then when they just get into the racing, you're like, all right, well, I guess it's just going to be a good sports movie and not really about that transition. But I did find that there is an incident in the film. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil, but there's an incident that highlights how dangerous racing actually is. And the way that the film handles the moral weight of that is also a little shaky. Like this is not an all-timer sports movie. It is a functional sports movie that if you want to go along with it, it will take you on a good vroom vroom ride. But like you really can't think too hard about this movie because the only actual conclusion is like nobody should fucking do this sport. It's an insane sport. <laughs> and like the movie kind of acknowledges that and interestingly acknowledges this incident, which is also real and is about the danger of racing, apparently because the real Jan Martinborough insisted that this incident be in the movie and didn't want there to be a movie about his life that pretended this hadn't happened. So I really respect that about him and his acknowledgement of the dangers of racing. But like the, the way the movie frames it into a triumphalist sports narrative, it's just like, yeah, 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 it's dangerous. It's racing. That's racing. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, but they uh... make a comeback or whatever. Yeah. I did find that part really interesting. And the one thing I do want to say is I had uh, just from researching before I saw the movie, I had been aware of the incident and I had watched some video stuff about the incident and the recreation of the incident in the movie is incredibly well done. You know, it looks almost exactly like what you could find on YouTube or, or other outlets. But I also agreed that there's a moment after the incident where it's like, okay, here's going to be the sort of <laughs> reckoning with the idea of what we're doing and who are the type of people who can do this or who choose to do this. And it was just like... <sighs> People are fine. Racing is dangerous, but also not so dangerous that you shouldn't do it because this is a sports movie and everyone wants to be at the top of that podium at the end of the day. And I found myself wanting so much more from that. Jamal, what did you think? This gets to sort of the maybe the artistic problem that this is a movie not just based on a video game, but like very much meant to promote a video game which is that you can imagine a version of this script that is very much about the psychology of someone who wants to race. Right. Like you could I, I, you can even imagine an Aronofsky film about this guy. Right. Um, single minded <laughs> devotion to wanting to race. And that is a movie that is very much about sort of like the danger and terror of racing, about sort of like the unusual psychology, maybe like a little sociopathic you have to have right. to want to engage in any of this. And that that is like but that's a very different kind of movie. Right. Like that's that's like a psychological thriller about a sport. And within the, the limits of this genre which is kind of like sports movie based off of famous property. There's only so much you can go in that direction. And the film doesn't really touch on any of the psychology of anyone involved in this. 
gives you a sense that you know may, maybe some competitors aren't very good sportsmen, that kind of thing. Some people are in it for the in it for the money, not for the soul. Uh, for those of you who remember the Disney Channel original movie Brink, of course, nineteen ninety eight, could never forget. <laughs> Showing my age, but this movie is in more in Disney Channel original movie vein than it is in kind yes. of like what is the deal with someone who wants to drive a car at three hundred miles per hour, which is like past just going fast. Vroom, vroom is fun and more towards, oh, I'm going to die. Right. It's like death wish control. You're right that there's a whole register this movie does not go for. And it's so interesting to me because I feel like there's a constant refrain throughout the movie that only a small percentage of the world's population can do this. And I'm sitting here wondering, well, what about the percentage of the world's population that wants to? <laughs> like, like, where do we factor that in? Because I also find that to be somewhat more interesting than the people who can, right? The people who are just innately gifted with a natural sense of coordination or whatever it is, finesse with, you know, these fine motor skills that requires you to be able to to do this but the people who want to do this and that's you know not to say obviously this would be too much for this one movie to get into and lord knows if this is successful enough there might be a Gran Turismo 2 or something but that's you know that's not to say anything about the women racers who are present in the training camp for like two seconds and then are sort of never present you know, afterwards, like they kind of just show up towards the end to watch as spectators. But there's no mention of how their presence there is breaking any boundaries and how, you know, the psychology might go into why it's heavily male dominated field. And there are so many more things that I think this movie didn't explore. But still, at the end of the day, I love a Disney Channel original movie. And I completely agree that that's what this was at its heart. And I will watch that for hours any day, all day. Yeah. If you are the kind of person who is susceptible to sports movies, this one is worth watching. It is not Pantheon level, but it's definitely solid. And I also have to sneak in. Do you guys know why Jerry Hallowell, the Spice Girl, is probably in this movie? No. Wait, so who who did she play? The mom. She played the mom. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And her okay. husband is Christian Horner, the team principal of Red Bull Racing Formula One. Or I don't oh. know if that's what his role still is. That's what his role was when they got married. But he's like, basically her post-spice life is as like a racing wife. So I enjoyed wow. her Wow. Who knew? All right, that's Gran Turismo. I think we thought it was a fun movie to just go and catch when you have some free time, and you can catch it in theaters now. Time to take a moment to tell you about our business for this episode. And our only item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we will review or talk about the article in The New Republic, We're All Preppy Now, which was written by Natalia Melman Petrozella, where Jamel, Julia, and I will go into our personal histories about preppiness and our own sense of fashion and how the idea of preppiness has evolved over time. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that conversation at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus members get ad free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the slate plus segment i just mentioned you also get to hear members only programming on other slate shows like slow burn and the political gab fest and members get unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com you'll never hit a paywall if you're a slate plus member 
I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Mask Girl is the latest in Netflix's goal to seemingly become the most dominant American production company in the market of Korean television and film. The seven-episode thriller series, based on the webtoon of the same name, is an interesting piece of social commentary that is, dare I say, Park Chan-wook-esque, and wrestles with themes of personal and sexual desire, beauty standards, fame, internet culture, and more in a patriarchal society. It tells the story of Kim Momi, a young woman who has been deemed unattractive her entire life, hindering her from following her dreams of becoming a famous K-pop idol. Instead, she dons a mask and assumes the internet alter ego of Mask Girl, a dancing live streamer who is also proficient in sexual titillation, until a series of unfortunate events derails, well, everything. It was written and directed by Kim Young-un and stars three different actors as Mask Girl as the show progresses. New actor Lee Han-pyul early on in the series, then K-pop idol Nana of the group After School, and finally, veteran actor Go Hyung-chung. In the clip we're about to hear, which for obvious reasons uses the English dubbed audio, Kim Mo-mi finds herself defending her own alter ego to an unknowing feminist colleague who has dismissed Mask Girl as promiscuous trash. That guy's a jerk. Keep up with the trends. My ass. I'm sure he gets off by himself while watching that dirty stuff. Uh, those live streams are not that dirty. What? Huh? Well, that stuff is called, uh, new media. I read an article about it. People like interacting like that these days, so... <laughs> yeah? New media? Come on. Julia, let's go to you first. What did you think of Mask Girl? Well, so first I have to cop to being a K-drama newbie. I haven't watched, I don't think, very much of any of them. I was out the week y'all talked about Squid Game. I So I was new-ish to American strain of, of American television access. And I loved it. There are so many interesting and engaging things about this show. It is incredibly visually stylish. Like the production design is amazing. So over opening credit sequence, like I'm a skip intro girl all the way at this point in general. And when people try to make them catchy, they end up seeming twee. And this is like a great opening credit sequence that I watched for every episode that I watched. So many people tried to do the like Mad Men Illo style for years after Mad Men. And it's like the first one to measure up, I think. And... The performances are great and the questions are interesting about appearance and about cultural beauty standards. And it's also interesting to watch a movie about beauty standards set in a culture that is not your own just because it it creates a layer between the whatever beauty standards you grew up thinking about that makes that topic feel fresh. And then <laughs> as it goes... The plot takes so many turns. There's just so much story. There's so I was watching with my brother-in-law who watched the first episode and a half with me and then left in the middle. And then I was like, whoa, now there's been t- two murders and it, and it involved a waterbed incident. And he was like, wow, that's that really took a turn. So anyway, I'm into it. I'm hooked. I thought it was really uh, provocative in a number of ways, like fun from a juicy story perspective. And I'm not sure yet exactly where it's going with what it's trying to say about oppressive beauty standards and internet culture and their warping effect on the human psyche, but it's definitely doing interesting things with those resonant themes. 
Well, I completely agree, especially with all of your comments about the opening credit sequence, which I also watch every single time I watched an episode. I'm not fully finished, but I'm closer to the end. And the story does take many, many turns. I watch a ton, just a lot of K-dramas. And the churn that K-dramas are able to do in terms of plot always astounds me (laughs) you know like I don't think that I've ever watched a k-drama that was just one note it always goes so many different places but I think what really stuck out to me with Mask Girl specifically is the specific tone of it especially for those first two episodes I think my main notes were just old boy but camp and I think (laughs) that for me it really was giving the same sort of dark comedy, but also still a thriller that Park Chan-wook is so great at, except just a little bit more camp, you know, steeped in internet culture, some really vivid colors going on, and yeah. some really wonderful music. I love the music throughout the show as well. Um, but yeah, there's something about the tone of the show that shows you some of the most bonkers or depressing or horrifying things, but still has moments of comedy in it and feels unique and odd, but in a really interesting way that you sort of can't get enough of, that I think highlights all of those, you know, social commentaries so much more, so stronger. And so I I really felt like I was honed in on what it was saying about men, capital letters, and the patriarchy, and the sort of uh, domestic violence, and just mundane violences, and systemic violences, and everything that it was saying about international beauty standards, and specifically Korean beauty standards, which which are really rigid and specific to a certain type, and also, you know, what it was saying about fame and wanting to be famous or having an obsession with a desire that turns a regular fan or an obsessed fan into a dangerous fan. And it made me think of the show Swarm, the Donald Glover show that was about an obsessed fan of a Beyonce type figure, a fictional Beyonce type figure who ends up going on a sort of murderous rampage across the country. And I found that show, as we discussed on this show, to be be really unsatisfying when it came to that specific premise. I thought the show excelled Mm -hmm. when it talked about the inner psychological workings of that protagonist. But anything that had to do with the actual obsessed fan becomes dangerous fan premise, I thought Swarm fell flat. This, to me, is actually maybe more of what I wanted that show to be in that regard. It has a whole bunch of people who have different desires that are very, very strong, obsessions, really, that turn them into dangerous people. And I find Mm -hmm. the way it depicts each and every one of them separately, but similarly in some cases, to be so interesting. From Mask Girl to someone else, to a grieving mother that comes into the story, who's played by one of my favorite K-drama actors currently, Yom Hiran. She was great in The Glory. It's just the way that it depicts that specific dynamic I found to be so much more successful and better than other shows that have tried to do the same thing. Jamel, how did you feel about Mask Girl? So this was also... I think my first K-drama ever, I've never really watched any of these things. It's mostly because I don't, I watch a lot of movies, but not so much a lot of television because I just can't commit to anything for that long. But what I've seen so far, I really enjoyed. And what it actually reminded me of, what it what it strongly reminded me of was Satoshi Khan's 1998 film, Perfect Blue, 1997, sorry. A psychological thriller about a pop star and an obsessive fan. 
And I mean, this is obviously the, the obsessive fan and the pop star. It's almost a genre unto itself. But what makes Perfect Blue so interesting and sort of what makes the work of Satoshi Kon so interesting was that he was very concerned with thin barrier between fantasy and reality. How people's fantasies often blur into their realities and shape their real life behavior in ways that can be incredibly destructive. And so in Perfect Blue, the pop star's, I guess, antagonist, like fan, uh, is a woman who herself is caught up in a fantasy of being a pop star and sort of living vicariously through our protagonist. And I, there's so much of that in this series. So in, in some of the resemblances were so strong, even a particular scene with Mascaro with our protagonist, like in the bathtub, which is there's a famous scene in Perfect Blue of our protagonist in the bathtub. I would not be surprised if the writers and directors of Mask Girl were riffing on Perfect Blue in one way or another. But that's all to say that I I also, you know, was really taken with what I saw, very taken with the way in which the psychosis of the characters is a bit of a slow burn. Like it's not apparent in that yes. first episode, at least, that these people have lost their minds. <laughs> <laughs> and the extent to which they have, I think, develops quite naturally and like leaves you feeling like disturbed. And that's like, I feel yes. like that's the feeling I felt throughout, which is that I am disturbed by these people and disturbed by the matrix of social relations they find themselves in. And I thought it was I thought it was very effective. I'm probably going to end up finishing this, especially after the first big twist. We've already mentioned two murders, but yeah, like two people get murked. And so after that, I'm kind of like, I want to see where this goes. <laughs> I want to see how this develops. Well, right. And it, it takes some much bigger terms in terms of the cast and where it goes and how it travels over time in ways that, it's just really expansive. I think you put your finger on something that appealed to me about a Jamel, which is so often when movies are exploring the type of psychosis that modern life can induce in you, from the jump, you're like, this person's cray. <laughs> and this is going to be a movie about or a show or a product about their craziness. And the kind of mundanity of the way you meet these folks and how they kind of seem like people you can identify with who have somewhat relatable relationships to love and beauty and technology that just like swerve to these dark places is unsettling and interesting. And there's just a sure-footedness in the control of tone throughout the production that makes me like want to go along for whatever ride this is going to be. Like it, it has control in the quieter early scenes. And so then when it takes this wild swing, you're like, a bit what the fuck but okay I'll go for it <laughs> yeah the show has many turning points and there's one early on which is kind of like when you watch the first episode you know for instance there's a scene that I absolutely loved that I rewatched maybe two or three times where our protagonist is sort of on a rooftop dramatically looking over, you know, across the city and you think that they're thinking about jumping, right? But then it quickly pans down and you see their colleague is sitting on the same bench they're standing on and is just looking up at them like, girl, what are you doing? And that to me is so funny. It sort of takes this melancholy idea and then tr 
transposes some sort of comedy into it that is like, oh, right, okay, this is the type of show I'm watching, which is very different from a scene that I experienced later where I knew something was going to happen and I'm not going to spoil what it was, but the suspense in that scene is so strong that I was still holding my breath even though I knew exactly how it was going to pan out and I was right. And I think for a show to have such a masterful ability to steer its tone so specifically in a certain way really helps it with that slow burn. And another thing that I think potentially possibly helped is the fact that each episode focuses on a different character, right? So it kind of gives the entire world more time by saying, okay, well, we're just going to go over and focus on on this for a second, and we're going to let that thing breathe. And I think that all of that, to me, ends up in a much more interesting show than Swarm, or even than My Idea's Gangnam Beauty, which is another K-drama that kind of is about the same things, but is a very middle-of-the-road like teen rom-com and isn't an adult sexual thriller or whatever. I found this to be really, really successful in imparting those themes. All right, that's Mask Girl. You can catch all seven episodes on Netflix. I think we all really liked it. So if you do check it out, let us know what you think. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. I don't know if you've heard, but according to native Virginian Oliver Anthony, your dollar ain't shit and it's taxed to no end because of rich men north of Richmond. What the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Or so he states in the chorus to his hit song, Rich Men North of Richmond, which at the time of recording is the number one song atop the Billboard Hot 100, with two more country songs taking the rest of the podium, might I add. The song has become a conservative anthem, even taking front stage during last week's Republican presidential debate, when the hopeful candidates were asked to explain its appeal. The song has, needless to say, interesting politics, chastising the rich at one moment and perpetuating the welfare queen stereotype the next. And of course, there's the Jeffrey Epstein dig. I wish politicians look out for miners. Not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord. And this is not to discount the confusing politics of Anthony himself, who wrote the song about his time working in a factory in North Carolina and who apparently disagrees with the rights weaponization of the song. Meanwhile, punk rocker Billy Bragg wrote an alternative leftist version of the song that he believes doesn't, quote, punch down, and instead asks a good question. Why not join a union? But the biggest question, maybe, at the heart of this is, is the song good? Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. Okay, Jamel, let me turn to you first. You wrote an opinion piece in The Times titled The Irony in the Rich Men North of Richmond. What is that irony? Can you rehash it for us? And what do you make of the song and the response? Sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this backwards in the in the order you asked the questions. First, I don't think the song is very good. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's legitimately difficult to listen to. I actually, you know, I live not far from where this guy is supposedly from, just a little bit north of Richmond. So this music is like, it's a thing in the area. But I don't think this is a particularly good specimen of it, so I'm just throwing that out there. So the politics of the song and of him, of of Mr. Anthony, are kind of incoherent, right? As As you mentioned, he rails against Richmond, the rich men north of Richmond. So there's a sort of like populist class anger there. But then he's like, well, I shouldn't have my dollars shouldn't have to pay for your fudge rounds, uh, which is a very specific snack. <laughs> I just I just feel like I should mention that. If you're fat. Um, 
He's worried right. about yeah, people if you're on fat. the street who can't eat. He's mad that the rich men don't care about people who can't eat, except for right. fat people on welfare, apparently. When Republicans embraced the anthem as like a theme, he was like, I'm talking about you guys. So, I mean, to me, the politics of the song are kind of the, I mean, they're the politics of a person who doesn't really pay too much attention, who has like a set of like kind of inchoate grievances. And they're all kind of just like filtered through their cultural position. And for sort of like a young, you know, white guy in a relatively rural area, like that's going to be some sort of like resentment directed to the top and resentment directed to the bottom as well. Now, what I wrote is that what I found sort of just like a little ironic about this is that the the anti, you know, welfare kind of like disdain for, you know, people and government benefits part of the song is like just funny because Oliver Anthony is from as far as I'm as far as I I'm aware from Farmville, Virginia, which is about an hour uh, west of Richmond and also an hour and some change west of Petersburg, Virginia, which was like the political home of a movement in the late 19th century in Virginia that was like the last kind of like, you know, interracial class-based populist movement in the state before it was like overtaken by Jim Crow about a decade later. And so there's like there's like a heritage in the state of populist politics, but it's a populist politics like directly aimed at the wealthy and not so much concerned with trying to separate oneself from those at the bottom. And I just found that a little ironic, again, saying that his politics don't appear to be very coherent. Right? <laughs> for example, you're the kind of person for whom the value of a dollar is like extremely important. It actually isn't taxed very much, like at all. If you're if your income is that low, in fact, and you work, the government pays you. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And it's like I don't expect someone to know that or anything, but like if your anthem becomes like a you know part of political fodder, it's like worth saying that like some of these objections aren't really rooted in, you know reality. Yeah, there are definitely certain fallacies involved in this entire thing. And I also agree that I find a lot of it, both the singer and the song, to be incoherent, as you were saying. One of the things that this song made me think back to, Jamel, was the piece that you wrote, I think when Trump, right around when Trump became the nominee, about how Trump happened, which was sort of pointing out that the white racial resentment was a huge part of Trump's appeal and that actually coherence is not an operating principle for many voters and citizens. Like I, like actually I think one fallacy of sometimes the political class and sometimes the journalistic class and I guess maybe the musical class <laughs> is that there's a yearning for coherence. But in fact, what shapes people's views and beliefs are a pile of personal experiences and grievances and, and kind of loose ideas, ideas is maybe even a strong word, adopted from whatever cultural stew you're in. I mean, it was interesting that Oliver Anthony rejected Fox News inserting his song into the opening minutes of the Republican primary debate last week and said that he was talking about all those men and it's not a song about Joe Biden and he rejects all the powerful men and I guess Nikki Haley. But he, to my knowledge, hasn't actually commented on Trump. And I, I guess I'm interested in this song as sort of an evolution of some of the resentments that drove Trump to power all those years ago. Like, 
Have they changed? Is it just the same strain resurfacing? Is this guy sort of opposed to all power, including Trump's? In a way, that feels like the missing piece of what this anthem is about. So that is one set of things that made me think about politically. Musically, I don't hate it as much as you guys. It's not, I'm not going (laughs) to cue it up, but I actually think the thing that I think drives its power and part of the power of the phenomenon is just the unlikeliness of it and the fun of, you know, someone making it out of nowhere. I mean, it's the same plot as Jan Martinborough in a way. But I actually think his voice and his phrasing, there's like a funny disgruntled bellow that he applies when he you know, says like bullshit, you know, your wages are bull. Like he he has a set of vocalizations that are unusual in modern pop and they contribute to this sort of sense of quote unquote authenticity that's coming through. And I feel like that's part of it too. Like I, it wouldn't be achieving these heights if it were without any musical hook. And I can feel a little bit of the hook in it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's catchy in a way. And I do think his voice is unique in a way that is, there's a space for it, for sure. You know, if even if we're talking, not that I think that they are the same artistically at all, but in terms of just a, a gravelly voice that bellows, right? Like, Chris Stapleton is probably cornering the market on that right now, but but there is a sort of market for that. Sam Adams' Slate colleague interviewed Billy Bragg about his alternative version. And Bragg said in that interview that he thinks the song has a bit of a strange structure. It doesn't really have a singable chorus. And because of that, people are more likely to latch on to the lyrics. And I think what's interesting is listening to Bragg's version, it is definitely more morally and politically aligned with my feelings, but I just don't know that there is or can be a catchy song that is an alternate version of this, but is pro-union. Like, I just don't know if musically that structure can align. And so I don't find that song to sort of be as sonically earwormy successful if we're going to call Richmond North of Richmond that at all. But yeah, I don't find it to, to match up in that way. And I also don't know if that's true. Like, I think I think it might be more of what Julia was saying, which I believe Jay Caspian Kang wrote, which is that it's not necessarily that people are so into the entire song, right? Like, as we're saying, even if they do latch on to the lyrics more, the lyrics aren't, you, you have to pick and choose, right? Like, you can cherry pick out of that song the things that you want, and you can stand by it if that's what you believe. But the entire thing doesn't really make much sense. But I think what people might be more responding to is, you know, a combination of his voice and just the idea that like you can become an overnight sensation, that you can make it overnight. What do you, Jamel, think about why or how this song came to be popular? So I know there's discussion about that its popularity being somewhat like manipulated just by like, you know, mass purchases of downloads or whatever. Mm. I don't know anything about that. So I'm just going to table it and say that I I do think the song does appeal to people for some, you know, for real reasons. And actually, you know, we've been talking about the the coherence or lack thereof of the message of the song. Julia mentioned Trump and the extent to which voters aren't necessarily looking for coherence. And I actually think this is an example of that. I think that there, 
when it comes to, say, Donald Trump's appeal to what they call low propensity voters, voters who don't normally come out to vote, but who have been coming out to vote when Trump is on the ballot, I think the extent to which he doesn't appear to have any really coherent beliefs at all, just he, he is sort of this like bundle of grievances. Some of them may strike people as very offensive. Others strike people as reasonable. Like in one breath, it's like the Mexicans aren't sending their best and isn't annoying that your toilet doesn't flush the way it should, right? Like that mimics how people develop their own ideas. <laughs> and that yeah. mimics how a lot of people actually interact with the world or the, with the world of politics. I think in a similar way, this song, precisely because it is this sort of grab bag of, you know, kind of barely put together complaints and grievances, it, it reflects how people actually order their thoughts. And I think in that way, it is like appealing. People can key into it in a way that they may not be able to key into a more you know, politically sophisticated song. Yeah, I think the thing that I came away wondering was even if this is, you know, just sort of fluke and it's, you know, it happened overnight and it's kind of a spark in the pan and, you know, whatever. If people, whether most likely conservatives, but whomever would try to sort of replicate this in a way. And if we live in a sort of society with a musical soundscape that is more amicable to, to that happening. I mean, the top three songs in the Billboard Hot 100 right now are country songs. There's Richmond North of Richmond as at number one. There's the Luke Combs cover of Fast Car at number two, which has its own interesting like history in politics. And then there's Morgan Wallen's Last Night at number three. And, you know, that's also not to say that there was recently that Jason Aldean song, Try That in a Small Town or whatever that song is called. What do you make of what this potentially could say about like what we might see in the future in terms of political rallying cries as country music and how they could sweep the charts. And like, is this going to be more of what we're going to be seeing going forward, do you think? That's an interesting question because, you know, country music is already kind of coded as conservative, even if, you know, mainstream, you know, Nashville country is like, it's like regular old pop music. It's not it's pop music with a twang, you know, but are, are we going to see a wave of kind of explicitly conservative politics, right-wing politics songs? If we are, I actually wouldn't expect them to be as successful as this with as much mainstream crossover precisely because something may be explicitly right-wing and much more coherent in terms of its political ideas. I think it's just not going to land with a broad audience. It's going to people can think, oh, this is weird. I do think sort of a related thing. I don't know. I don't know how much I can kind of like fit this into the conversation about the song, but something that is related is just how much the culture of the rural South in particular has kind of become like generic conservative culture everywhere. It's how people express their conservatism culturally. You know, you you get a big truck. You listen to country music. You talk about living in a small town, even if like your quote unquote small town in in the case of Jason Aldean is like a suburb of a major metropolitan area. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like people behave as Southern, even as they live in like upstate New York, having just been in upstate New York and seeing people adopting and using the cultural mores of where I'm from 
which is not upstate New York. It's just interesting to me to see how political partisanship and ideology and like this sort of like consumable version of rural Southern culture have all kind of like cohered together into something. That wasn't the case when I was a teenager in the 2000s. It wasn't really the case, right? It wasn't a thing. But now it seems very much to be a thing. And I think that's interesting. I have no like larger conclusion to draw from it, but I think it's interesting. I guess I have a flip side theory or wondering, which is whether the presence of some of these voices on the pop charts might actually suggest that some of the resentment and anxiety is less pent up and less hidden maybe than it felt 10 years ago or something. Like if your perspective or pieces of your perspective are represented in lines of this song, I wonder if that might make you feel heard (laughs) in a way that would weaken the appeal of some of the political forces that are also trying to make you feel heard in a similar way. Maybe that's just a pure fantasia, but there was something about the Trump moment, the initial Trump moment during that primary race where it felt like he was identifying and channeling and speaking to a populist rage, a class rage that was very thinly layered over a racial rage that just there was not a lot of other voices speaking directly to it. And in the last, you know, eight years, there are many, many more cultural voices and political voices and other voices trying to cater to that audience. And it's hard to know whether that attention sort of stokes that resentment. It probably does, or also makes it feel less overlooked because it is more recognized. So that's the question I have about what this cultural dominance means is like whether it fans those flames or gives them more outlets in ways that that might bend them in a different direction. Yeah, it's definitely a good question. And it seems like we'll just have to wait and see how things shake out in the future. But for now, that's Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond, which you can find on music streaming platforms and you can watch the video on YouTube. I believe it's time for the moment in the podcast where we endorse. Jamel, what would you like to endorse this week? You know, I I mentioned earlier in our conversation the movie Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kon, and I'm going to say that you should watch that movie. That's what I'm going to recommend. And also watch his other movies. He passed away, sadly, at a young age from cancer. But he had four completed films, Perfect Blue, a Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika. Paprika got an American release and was something of a thing. But they're all excellent. And my personal favorite beyond Perfect Blue is a film called Millennium Actress, which is really a love letter to the Japanese cinema of the mid-century from the perspective of a woman at the end of her life living through her memories. Again, this sort of blurring the line of fantasy and reality is very much a part of of that film as well. It's a lovely little picture, and I, I highly recommend it. So my recommendation, Millennium Actress, and just the work of Satoshi Kon uh, altogether. Um, uh, he was a brilliant director and very sad that he, he left us at such a young age. Great. I haven't seen any of those, but you're describing them as something that's right up my alley. So I will run to go watch those movies. Julia, what did you bring to our roundtable to endorse this week? Love to bring a food rack, to, especially to you two, such esteemed foodies. And this is probably one of those food racks where I'm going to say it and you guys are going to be like, uh-duh. But I have moved this summer 
from the camp of people who is ignorant about the glories of a tomato sandwich to the group of people who eats five tomato sandwiches a day. And I'm really happy about this life change for myself. And I want to highlight a specific recipe in New York Times cooking with a slight twist on it, which is the Furikake Tomato Sandwich by Eric Kim in the NYT cooking app, which proposes that you take two pieces of like Wonder Bread style white bread, toast them lightly, slather them in mayo, put some Japanese furikake seasoning on them where it suggests you could also use everything bagel seasoning if you have that, and then slice some big heirloom tomatoes, crack a little salt and pepper on them, plop them in the middle, lunch. And it is so good. And I don't know why I never did it before. I've like heard about tomato sandwiches. I've read about tomato sandwiches. I just never, I don't know, never did it. And then I did. And I was like, what have I, I've been wasting my life for 40 odd years. So are you guys tomato sandwich people? And if so, have yes. you tried this specific variation? As a, as a born and raised Southerner, I am a tomato sandwich person. I've not tried this variation. I don't like mayo mm. all that much. And so- my approach to the tomato sandwich these days is a little a little unconventional, but it's very tasty. And it is instead of white bread, get like a nice, a nice pita, homemade better, but like a nice fluffy pita, toast it, and then slather it with a tahini sauce, right? Tahini, lemon, garlic, ice water. Uh, emulsified tahini sauce basically has the consistency of mayo. You can you get the same effect and also the nuttiness and the slight bitterness of a good tahina. And then you can put your big slice of tomato on top, drizzle it with plenty of olive oil, a little sprinkle of salt, and some za'atar. It's wonderful. That sounds delicious. I will have to try that immediately. I absolutely love tomato sandwiches. Before I stopped eating meat, BLTs were my absolute favorite kind of sandwich. And I still feel to this day that a BLT is a perfect sandwich and perhaps the best one. And so when I stopped eating meat, I definitely kept that trend. But instead of replacing the B, I just did, you know, some version of the LT or even just the T. So I love a tomato sandwich. I think my go-to is usually a slice of sourdough and uh, Kewpie mayo and then some arugula and then some like thick juicy slices of tomato salt and pepper and I'm like set for eternity it's one of my absolute favorite lunches during heirloom tomato season for sure so I you know I 100% stand by that so my endorsement for this week is the album Volcano by the British neo-funk disco group Jungle. But more specifically, I want to endorse the series of music videos Jungle released for the singles that are dance-based or feature dance heavily. They're set in the same world, all these music videos, kind of like a stage performance. They use the same dancers, and they have choreography all done by one of my absolute favorite choreographers working right now, Shay Latukolin, who is a Moluccan Dutch choreographer who fuses like classic disco, funk, and jazz movement with hip-hop, some African, and sort of like commercial and street styles. And what's so fun about these music videos is that they're a part of this trend where synchronized group choreography is starting to make a mainstream return, and not in the K-pop idol boy band sense, which I also love, don't get me wrong, but in a more unique sense, like taking from classic Broadway and international dance movement, for example. And so one of the best examples of this return is the fantastic 
choreography in Troy Sivan's music video for his song Rush. But these jungle music videos have now even brought that more into the focus. So the singles are Candle Flame, Dominoes, I've Been in Love, and then my favorite and the one that's sort of going semi-viral is Back on 74. So check out all of those on YouTube and listen to some jungle for some easy bops to get you through the week. Jamel, it's always so great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and Julia, thanks for being here as always. Thanks for letting me be the one to say that to you. (laughs) What a treat. Thank you for holding down the fort. You were stellar as usual. Thank you so much. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the composer Nicholas Brattel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer this week is Jared Downing. For Jamel Bowie and Julia Turner, I'm Nadira Goff. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.